Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest, Alisa Childers. She is an author, a speaker, a mom, a podcaster, a blogger, and a worship leader. She was a member of the award-winning CCM group, Zoe Girl, and she has her own YouTube channel, which is wonderful. I think I've done a couple of interviews on that channel, and she's the author of Another Gospel, and today we're going to talk about her new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. And the subtitle is Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. But first, a word from our sponsor. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Welcome, Elisa Childers. Beckett, it's so great to be on your show. I'm just a huge fan of everything that you're doing and been I've been greatly inspired by your ministry. So it's an oh. honor and I'm thrilled. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm inspired by your show too. I, I've been on your show a couple of times, right? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. came on uh, back when we were just audio before we had gone to the YouTube platform. Then you came on and did a live stream with me after... I kind of launched my YouTube channel. So yeah, a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go on my show. So yeah. you wrote this book um, in the beginning of the book, live your truth and other lies. I love the title, live your truth and other lies. <laughs> uh, but in the beginning, you say in many ways, this book is about the Bible. It's also a book about logic and common sense and the ridiculous ways we talk ourselves out of those things. Mostly, though, it's a book about planting our feet on the bedrock of God's truth, truth that doesn't evolve with cultural trends. So talk about where did you come up with this idea? Why did you start writing this book? What was the impetus? Yeah, so I uh, previously had written about progressive Christianity. So my first book, it was like a memoir, right? Kind of a theological memoir of walking through a really intense time of doubt and interacting with the movement of progressive Christianity. So there was a lot of apologetics in that book. There was a lot of arguments that make the case for the reliability of the Bible, things like that. But there's this whole other aspect to the progressive type of Christianity that we see expressing itself on social media and even sadly in a lot of our churches. Mm -hmm. And that's just these kind of slogany talking points. And they also are, by the way, totally in line with what we see in culture. But ultimately, it really just comes down to how you view authority, right? Is is you, are you yourself, your authority for truth? Like your moral intuition, your thoughts, your preferences, uh, you know, how wonderful you think you are. Is that your authority for truth? Or is it going to be something outside of yourself that can actually correct maybe what your opinion might be wrong sometimes, right? So it really, the book is dealing with all of the slogans in culture that really are also in progressive Christianity and, and promoted by big time progressive Christian leaders that mm -hmm. really lead everybody to essentially, I mean, just if I were to just say what it is in the big picture, it's to worship yourself, right? It's to say, I am perfect just as I am. So because of that, I'm going to just dig down in my heart, find the gold that's in there 
and just unleash that on the world. And, you know, as Christians, we know, though, that there's kind of this this big but there, right? We have the the idea that we were made in God's image. God called us good, all that. But then there's a but, right? The the fallenness of humanity and knowing yeah. that we are actually sinners that need a savior. Like we actually need something outside of ourselves to complete us, to make us whole, to bring reconciliation between us and a holy God. So it's, it's at times lighthearted, but I really wanted to address not just the kind of more apologetic arguments, but the things I think that people are more persuaded by because they sound good. They sound positive and kind of happy. And it sounds like the thing you want to say to somebody if they're struggling, like you want to say you're enough, you know, you're just as you are, you're enough because it sounds good. <laughs> but just at the end of those things, not only is it, does it fail logically, but it's really spiritually devastating at the same time. Yeah. And one of, one of those uh, aphorisms is live your truth. And so that sounds good, right? To live your truth, but in reality, it's 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 uh it's so oppressive and it's so mm. um, divisive, actually. And so, what what what's the difference between living your truth and living the truth? I know that's a big question, but just kind yeah, of yeah. maybe give us a little sampling of that because you talk about that in the book. Yeah, that's a big one, right? And so, I you know, I'm sensitive to the fact that people are using that phrase in various ways, like. We've seen uh, even from people who have been through abuse or something like that, they might say, hey, you need to speak your truth, meaning about what happened to you so that people will listen to you. Um, But even so, even if people are using it in that context, it has to be rooted in objective reality. And then the person who has been through abuse or something and they're speaking the truth is even better because you're not saying like, this is my opinion. This isn't just something that I think happened to me. This, you know, this is something I need to speak because it's actually objectively true in reality. And so really what it comes down to is how we approach this question of what is truth. And I think, you know, traditionally, Uh, I think logically truth should be, in fact, I do this with my kids. I say, what is truth? And they know to say back to me, truth is what is real, right? I don't get to make that up. I don't get to, uh, you know, figure out. Truth is what corresponds to reality. That's That's right. Truth is what is real. It's, it's, It's a statement, a proposition, a belief that lines up with reality, that corresponds with reality. And, um, but in our culture, that is not what people are meaning when they talk about truth. For many people, I think in our culture, truth is really more what your opinion on something might be. And so I think where this might come into like a a concrete idea for Christians is I think most people in the world, they're not walking around like relativists, right? Most people go to the bank and they expect their money to be there. They, they're going to do mathematics. They're going to, you know, appeal to science and things like that. So people aren't necessarily living as if truth, uh, you know, is this thing you kind of make up within yourself, But when it comes to the realms of morality, when it comes to the realm of religion, our culture has put those two things in the my truth category, right? Right. So if you think, you know, whatever your favorite flavor is ice cream of ice cream is the best flavor, and I think it's something else, you know, that's an opinion. That's a subjective opinion. That's not rooted in reality. That's there's nothing that can be tested outside of between what's between our ears, right? And so people have gotten this idea that what are you know what's right and wrong should and shouldn't and even what we believe about god like that's in the ice cream category for most people and so when they say live your truth what they're meaning is you know figure out what you think and then proclaim that to the world and nobody has the right to tell you that you're wrong about that much in the same way as it would be odd for me to tell you Beckett like if you think chocolate ice cream is the best you're wrong and I need to correct you everybody would think that's weird right and the reason the world thinks that's weird when Christians come around saying no Jesus is the only way to God and there is a place called hell and Jesus is the final judge like they're thinking ice cream and they're like whoa why are you bringing all of these like declarative statements when that's just your truth. And so I think just kind of separating those things for people and helping them think through what the definitions of these words actually mean, what categories we're working with, where do these things fit in these categories is really helpful because um, we just Christianity doesn't work like ice cream, right? God exists or he doesn't. Jesus really was raised from the dead or he wasn't. And if he was, he made claims about himself that are very exclusive. Christianity makes claims that are very exclusive. And so that's true for everybody everywhere, whether they believe it or not, whether they accept it or not. So just trying to help Christians kind of get back and recover that really good definition of truth, the correct one, which is that it corresponds with reality. Yeah. And, um, you know, 
we can thank postmodernism. I mean, postmodernism has come home to roost, obviously. Oh, yeah. And everything's subjective. There's no objective truth. Even language is subjective. And and so I, I you in the book you talk about those signs, those on lawn on people's lawns, those signs that say love is love, women's rights are human rights, science is real, et cetera, et cetera. So what are these signs? What do they betray about our culture today? Yeah. In terms of postmodernism. Yeah. Okay. So oh gosh, this I could talk about all day. I I I love talking about this because it is really something that has, it's a cultural phenomenon and that's this redefinition of words, right? So just talking about the science, you know, science is real. Well, I think science is real. I know you think science is real, <laughs> but that's not what that sign means, right? So the, the phrase science is real has implications for all sorts of moral things that people are going to attach to it. Love is love. Well, yeah, love is love if it's properly defined, if it's defined biblically, if it's, you know, corresponding with reality. Um, but just because somebody might be attracted to uh, someone or something doesn't make that love. It doesn't make that right. There's all sorts of other questions that have to come into play. But these cult- these cultural slogans are really kind of like a creed, right? It's like a creed in our culture. Right. But so many of these words are being redefined. And so and I've actually discovered that. Um, as I'm currently right now researching and writing a book on the phenomenon of deconstruction. And from the time I signed my book contract until now, which is just maybe six, seven months, maybe a year, maybe it's been a year. The word deconstruction has come to mean several different things. So back in 2019, when people used the word deconstruction, they meant deconversion from Christianity. That's what they meant. Right. And then over the past year, a lot of people have come around trying to say, oh, no, deconstruction can be a good thing. It can be something where you're just, you know, you're asking the hard questions, you're engaging your doubts, you're not afraid to question things. And so right now, for a lot of people, deconstruction means everything from changing your mind on what you want for lunch to like becoming an atheist. Right. It's just it's just but that's postmodernism in action, because the word has philosophical baggage. It goes back to the postmodern philosophers of the 60s, like Jacques Derrida and Foucault. And people, this is the crazy thing. People will say, no, it's not postmodern. It's just a rethinking of your faith. But if you go back to where the word, like the father of deconstruction, Derrida, who didn't believe words had uh, you know, singular meanings and definitions that they could be pinned down to. Now, tell me if this sounds familiar. So according to Derrida, therefore, the 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 meaning of the words the the author's intent had no more bearing on the meaning than the hearer's interpretation well that's where we're at today and so people are deconstructing the bible they're deconstructing christianity and they're using derrida's playbook and they're it's it's a it's got total postmodern underpinnings but they don't even realize it because postmodernism has completely overtaken our culture we'll be right back after this short break what impacts you every day There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Yeah, and I I, re- I remember in one of J.P. Moreland's classes when I was in seminary, he he used the example of this postmodernist idea of, you know, if I say a cat, the cat is on the mat, you probably understand what I mean by that, right? Yeah, probably like a you know you picture a feline creature maybe on a 
thin, like kind of maybe a blue mat. You you understand what I'm saying? The cat is on the mat. But because of Derrida, because of Michel Foucault, and because of uh, postmodernism, you could, if I say to you, if I say to you, Elise, I love your shirt, you could interpret that as you want to kill me. Right. That's, like, that's yes. how how crazy postmodernism yeah. is and that's how and that's it's, right like that it's microaggressions and yeah. all that stuff that that's how that all plays in yeah um or you want to hurt you want to harm me or something i mean i'm you know it's like that's how that's how postmodernism has come home to roost and it's obviously as you said it's seeping into the church and it's it's destroying a lot of it and it's dividing a lot of people mm. in the church which is not good yeah. Uh, but I love this. I saw this sign. I, I was looking up these signs and I saw this. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a sign that uh, a yard sign that says in this house, we believe that simplistic platitudes, trite tautologies and semantically overloaded aphorisms are poor substitutes for respectful and rational discussions about complex issues. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I think there that's going to go. be my new yard sign. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'll co-sign on that. That's right. <laughs> and you, uh, you, you say this in the book. You say that uh, the, that the 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 idea that truth is subjective is a contradiction. Kind of just mm -hmm. tease that out a little bit. Yeah. So when we think about truth, um, the, I think sometimes people mistake when they say subjective truth, which I don't think exists. Now, I I have to acknowledge that even you know, Christian philosophers will, will, some will allow for subjective truth, like, like the, the claim of what's the best ice cream flavor, like that could be a subjective truth. I actually still disagree with that. Because if I say that Rocky Road is the best ice cream flavor, it's still true for everyone else and true for you, Beckett, that I think Rocky Road is the best chocolate ice cream. Well, so no, that still is an objective truth. truth. That's an objective. Yeah, that's truth. an objective truth. So there, <laughs> I don't make it like my subjective opinion doesn't make it true in reality that Rocky Road is the best. So I because because that's that's just it's not in the realm of truth. That's just an opinion. So I like to think of it this way: if it's something that can't be tested in reality, if it's just in the realm of preference or opinion, like favorite dessert, favorite flavor of ice cream, uh, something along those lines that you can make a claim that such and such is the best ice cream flavor, but that claim can't be tested outside of what's just in your own brain as your opinion. So it's not a truth in this, in the capital T sense of objective truth. And so I, I just don't think subjective truth is, is real. I think you can make subjective truth claims, but then we have to assess, like, is that in the realm of reality? Does that correspond with reality or what about that corresponds with reality? And so, um, so I would kind of fall in the camp that would say there is no subjective truth. Every truth you know, if it's true, is true in reality. And the way truth works is it's true for everyone at all times, in all places, across cultures, ethnic backgrounds. I mean, truth is true. Uh, it's something you discover. You don't invent it. It's not something that you make up and make true. You can something if I, I use this example in the book, if there's a, a hole in the ground in the middle of a forest and it's an empty hole and then two rocks fall in and then two more rocks fall in, there are four rocks in that hole, even if there's never a human around to observe it. It's still true, <laughs> whether or not we know it or not. And truth, you know, the way truth works is it can be conveyed, uh, you know, in a beautiful way. It can also be stated by a jerk and still be true. Um, so, you know, someone's manner or demeanor doesn't make something true or false. And honestly, I just think we've lost the plot on how to think in these categories. And um, this is like with my kids, because we're homeschooling this year for the first time. And so I'm just drilling this into their heads. Like the, their truth is true for everybody at all times, all places. It's true for you. It's true for me. There's nothing that's just true for you. That's not true for me and vice versa. And just kind of helping them see how some of these things refute themselves but man, honestly, Beckett, I think critical thinking, just some good basic logic, uh, if we could recapture that, we we would win 70% of the battle just as far as, because Christianity is rooted in truth. It's the yeah. the best explanation for reality. Yeah. And and of course, the Bible is the answer to that. And the Bible is the plumb line of truth. It is the plumb line. That's and right. I, I just remember, you know, as I've said that on the show many times before, before I became a Christian 13 years ago, 
I, I lived in a postmodern world and I didn't know what was right or wrong and up or down, up or down or, you know, left or right. I just, it was all subjective. Everything was subjective and that I just kind of went with my feelings and whatever my feelings said was right. So when I came to faith in Christ, it was, you talk about this in the book, it's just that burden was just lifted. That mm. heavy burden of postmodernism was lifted off of me. And I was like, ah, oh, there is objective truth. And it's amazing. And I love the yeah. fact that the Bible is the plumb line. And you can, you can, you know, if you have questions about, well, what, what should I do? You can go to the word of God and you know yeah. that that's true. I love that you, you describe it that way. And I've told you this before that like, sometimes I wish I could, I don't have an experience of like pre-Christian experience. I, I grew up in it, loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. And so even when I was reading your book and you describe encountering these things for the first time. I feel like jealous, right? I feel this sense of jealousy. And I, so like, I love that you're describing it that way because that's what I imagine it would feel like for someone who has been steeped in postmodern modernism. I mean, think about even what we're doing to our children, telling them that who you are as a person is something you have to figure out, right? You have to decide these things for yourself, uh, you know, identify them, proclaim them to the world, and then everybody else has to affirm these things about you. I mean, not only is it nonsensical, but what a burden to place on our children. What a burden to place on somebody to say to them, like, let's say there's somebody having a really rough day, maybe feeling kind of down in the dumps about their parenting or something else. And we say to them, look, you're enough. What we're really saying to them is you have to fix all your own problems that you caused for yourself in the first place. Like, you just dig it out of there somewhere. You just got to dig down and find the pot of gold inside of yourself and and make it all right. And I mean, what a burden. I think that's why the gospel message is so beautiful. It's so life-giving. It's mm-hmm. so freeing. Because essentially what we're telling people is you actually don't have to do that anymore. All that striving can cease. You can trust in Christ who actually is enough and he's way better than you'll ever be. And then his enoughness gets, you know, imputed onto you. I mean, that's a great answer. And I think that's a freeing and life-giving answer for those who have ears to hear. Yeah. I mean, you say in the book that you the, the phrase you are enough is a message of bondage, not freedom. And that's so true because it's just, it is, it's a, it's, such a burden to think that you are (laughs) praise god that you know i know we know that we aren't enough and that god is is enough jesus is enough uh you also get into i'd like you to compare and contrast to people that you discuss in your book if you don't mind glennon doyle and elizabeth elliott can you talk about who who they are and contrast kind of how their lives played out in terms of one played out in kind of a postmodern way and one played out in a biblical way. So can you address that? Yeah. So this was something that I thought a lot about while I was writing the book, because part of leading up to me writing this book around the same time, I don't, I'm not sure why uh, I was reading these books at the same time, but I was reading Glennon Doyle's Untamed, which was the one of the most popular books the year it came out, I think like about, I think it was 2019. It was just one of the most popular books released that year across all genres on New York Times bestseller. But then at the same time, I and was what reading was the new... What was Untamed about? So Untamed is the story. So if people are unfamiliar with Glennon Doyle, she was started out as a Christian mommy blogger. So many years ago, she had this, this blog called Mommastery. She was a Christian mommy blogger, went on to write a lot of books, got really, really popular among mainstream culture as well. So she was on Oprah, uh, you know, just New York Times bestselling author. And then she had just written a book about how her husband, or I guess her husband had cheated on her, but they had tried to repair their marriage. And so she wrote a book about that. But right in the throes of that, she basically realizes that she's fallen in love with women's soccer star, Abby Wambach. And so she basically untamed is their story. So untamed is the story of her making the decision to leave her husband, you know, come out, marry Abby and and essentially like what led up to that? What was her thinking? It's kind of an apologetic for their love story, I I would call it. And so um, and and this is the thing about the book is the reason it was so popular wasn't just that it's because they're really, you know, she's a she's an interesting person. There's a lot of 
um, kind of insights woven throughout the book where even I'm like, that that's a good insight. Like she tells the story of her kids um, at the soccer game and it was her turn to bring snacks. And the, the mom called her and was like, you know, you got to have like six kinds of cream cheese. And she's like, look, <laughs> they're getting plain cream cheese, you know? And I think every mom is like, yeah, just get, you know what? They're not getting strawberry. Just one kind is fine. You know, they'll yeah. live. They're not going to die. So there's little moments like that where there's some really good wisdom and insight, but it's so interwoven with this um, self-worship. So she, throughout the book, she regularly conflates the self with what she would call God, even using a capital S for self. Um, she talks about going into her closet and meditating and sinking lower and kind of discovering what she calls liquid gold. And really this liquid gold is what helps her make decisions. So if, if it feels warm to her, she's going to say yes. If it feels cold, she's going to say no. And, um, and ultimately where the comparison with Elizabeth Elliot comes in is there's this moment in the book Untamed where she talks about that pivotal moment where she decided, you know, she'd already fallen in love with Abby. This is the moment that made her decide to pull the trigger, leave her husband and, and go with Abby. And she quoted Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. Uh, and I'm gonna have to paraphrase the quote because I don't have it in front of me. But he said something about, you know, there's there's nothing worse for your kids than them observing the unlife unlived life of their mother. So in other words, you have to live your dream. You have to live your truth to be a good example for your kids. And so she says in the book, so I would leave her, you know, her husband and I would marry Abby because I'm a mother and I have responsibilities. And so right around the time that I'm reading Untamed, I'm also reading the biography of the in-depth biography of Elizabeth Elliot, who their story is really famous. She was married to Jim Elliot, uh, who was a missionary to, I believe it was called the Urani tribe. It's hard to say in Ecuador. Uh, and he and his and his fellow missionaries who had gone into this to minister to this tribe who had never heard the gospel, they ended up being killed by the tribe members. Well, two years later, Elizabeth has a two, she's got a two-year-old uh, little girl at this time. And she goes and flies there and goes in and leads all of that tribe, including the people who killed her husband, to the Lord. And then I have this little comment in the book, which I think is fair. And I say, because she's a mother and she had responsibilities, right? She's got her daughter there with her <laughs> witnessing all of this. Yes. And so the comparison is very stark. You have these two women who um, have are very committed to their worldview. They're very passionate about what they believe about things. And they go in radically different directions. And um, of course, you know, spoiler alert, I think the Elizabeth Elliot response, you know, is is much better and much more life-giving and much more meaningful and long-term eternal and all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And one is kind of biblical and one is one is making kind of yourself a God and one is honoring yeah. God and glorifying God. Um, yeah. And you talk about uh, there's a chapter on authenticity, which you know, authenticity is the buzzword of the day. Uh, we can thank Rousseau for that. Uh, but you, it's funny because um, a friend of mine who is a fashion photographer, I worked with her for years and she, um, she did a book, a coffee table book called The Authentics. And she, she mm -hmm. photographed very fabulous people around, around the world at their, at their beautiful homes. And, and, um, and I asked her, like, and I worked on her, I worked with her on this book. And I asked her, I said, why aren't you photographing me? Because I'm the most authentic person, you know, because I'm who God created me to be in relationship with him. So and she, wow, kind of, yeah. she kind of looked at me like, what? <laughs> but um, talk about authenticity and how like biblical authenticity versus worldly authenticity. Right. So this is one of those words, right? Going back to that, those postmodern redefinition of words, right? So authenticity is a good thing when properly defined, I think. You know, mm. I think Christians could be a little more and in, in meaning, you know, genuine, right? People right. have always viewed the word authentic to mean I'm genuine about you know, things. I'm, I'm a genuine person. I'm not putting on airs. I'm not wearing masks. Right. And I think Christians could use more of that. Right. We don't want to show up at church on Sunday morning and pretend our lives are perfect and put on the nice clothes and smile big. And then, you know, we want to 
being the church, being in fellowship with each other means we need to be confessing our sins to each other. We need to be holding each other accountable, walking with each other, sharing meals. All I mean, I fail miserably at a lot of these things, but it's the goal, right? I, I want to be more hospitable. And um, one of these days, I'll work up the courage to read our friend Rosaria's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, when I'm brave enough to read that. <laughs> I have a copy of it. I'll let you. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, all of that requires um, the real, the authentic definition of the word authenticity, but that's not what our culture means right now. When they're using the word authentic culturally, really what that means is just kind of look inside yourself and identify what you see there and then and then proclaim that to the world. Well, as Christians, we know that what we're going to find in there, we're going to find things we need to repent of. We're going to find areas in our heart and in our life that don't line up with who Christ is, things we want to be made more into the image of Christ. But in the world's eyes, it's like, you don't repent for any of that. You don't need to. In fact, I quote Brené Brown, who says, you know, real belonging, this this idea of authenticity is not about changing who you are. It's about becoming who you really are. And um, I mean, that sounds nice. But as Christians, we know that if I just magnify whatever's inside of me, that could end up actually being really hurtful to other people. That could be really bad for me. And so I think in the Christian world, authenticity has more become a buzzword where we can just kind of wink at our sin. Like, this is just who I am. These are my rough edges. And I'm not going to apologize for those. I'm just going to live my truth and live that out. Um, But, but as we know, as Christians that we are required, really the goal shouldn't be authenticity. The goal should be holiness. We should be pursuing the holiness of God to be imitators of Christ to, I mean, it's just reading the scriptures. I've been memorizing. I'm trying to memorize the whole first chapter. Uh, yeah. Chapter first chapter, first Peter. And, oh, you know, wow. as you, as you really meditate on the scriptures and memorizing, will do that. It will cause you to just ruminate on those scriptures. It's like, there's just no sense in which script biblically, like, we're just supposed to live our truth. And, you know, God just made, he made you so unique and special and you just need to give the world all the special things about you. You just don't find language like that in the Bible. And so I think that authenticity biblically means we're giving the real genuine message of the gospel to people. That means we're properly diagnosing the what's wrong with the world, which is going to be sin, very unpopular answer these days. Right. And so the authentic gospel is going to be life-giving to those who, well, Paul said this, he said, we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And to those who are being saved, it smells like life, but to those who are perishing, it smells like death. And, and I think that that's something for Christians to keep in mind is that the authentic message, the real gospel, authentic Christians are going to be offensive to the world. Jesus was, and yeah. the, and he told us why the world hated him. He said, because, because he convicted the world of their sin. Nobody likes that. And so I think just Christians, we need to reorient our minds around these biblical truths rather than the things that culture values, because typically culture doesn't value the same things. Yeah. And um, yeah, and Jesus was killed for speaking the truth. Uh, and you you talk about and, and I get this question a lot uh, when I when I'm speaking at places and uh, oftentimes it's younger people, but, and, and it's usually related to kind of sexuality and just kind of wanting to do your own thing. But what about this question of God? You have a chapter on it uh, called mosquitoes. God just wants you to be happy question mark. So what about that? What about, um, what, what do you say to that when people mm. say, well, you know, God wants me to be happy. Like this is the way he built me. This is the way he created me. And he just wants me to be happy. What do you yeah. say to that? Yeah. So there was some research done in 2005 and they, they polled the average American teenager. So this was not like specifically Christian teenagers. This was just the average American teenager. And what they discovered was uh, that when it comes to issues of spirituality, the average American teenager basically thought that God just wanted them to be happy and nice to each other. You know, like niceness is such a cultural value right now when people are so not nice, which is so odd, but you know, um, that God just wanted them to be happy, to be nice to each other. And, you know, he's not really going to be the, all that involved. He's not going to tell you who you can sleep with or not sleep. He's not going to with that stuff, but he'll be there if you need him, if you need him to solve a problem. And so the term moralistic therapeutic deism was coined. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what we're 
we're seeing now we're seeing all these years later that generation has grown into adulthood and i think it's permeated even into the church and i'm sympathetic to you know as a parent i want my kids to be happy but i have to even myself sometimes go hang on is that really the biblical goal for them is the biblical goal for my kids to just be you know if they're happy in life that means they're successful well well that can't be right because there can be atheists that live you know, quote unquote, happy lives until the day they die. And then they die in their sins and they die without the Lord. So, you know, we have to reorient ourselves as Christians around what God, you know, God's purpose for us is to know him, is to worship him, right? That's when we're in alignment with our creators, when we're in right relationship with him. And so as Christians, I think for each other, for our children, for ourselves, our goal should be to be obedient to Christ and to line up our lives with his teachings. And that's not, obviously we read in the Bible, we know through church history, that's not always going to give you the most superficially happy life. But then I see in the book, but actually here's the plot twist. God actually really does want you to be happy, but he defines happiness way differently, right? Happiness biblically is that it's 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 knowing that you are in right relationship with your creator. So this is the beauty of it. Beckett is like I tell the story of my friend Maydeen who lived as a refugee in Congo for 18 months. Whether you're a refugee in Congo or whether you're in a a prison cell for maybe an maybe unjustly even. Let's say you're imprisoned for a crime you didn't commit. Wherever you are or you're living in a mansion or you're living in a middle class house, wherever you are, you can have true deep abiding joy. Because A, you are in right relationship with your creator. And it's really not about this life, right? We have an eternal hope. And also, we also know that we have this added bonus of how God uses suffering in our lives. And so I talk about Corey Ten Boom. I bring uh, Elizabeth Elliot back into it. I I quote from Johnny Erickson Tata, who uh, famously uh, dove into a pool as a teenager and became paralyzed. And she's just lived this amazing life ministering the gospel to people uh, through that suffering. But when you, when you look at people who have gone through a lot of suffering, what you find is that you find a stronger faith, you find a deeper, more abiding joy than even people who haven't suffered a lot have. And uh, that's the conundrum of the whole thing. But but I mean, it's, this is where I say in the book, it's like, we're going to look at the logical level too, because this just makes logical sense, right? Look at how we raise our kids. I remember when my daughter was first trying to learn how to stand before she walked. And I, w- I was sitting in a chair, just like the chair I'm sitting in now. And she was at my feet and she was pulling on my legs, trying to pull up to stand. And everything in me wanted to just scoop her up and put her on her feet. And I, but I was like, she has to do this. She has to struggle through because if her bones are going to be strong enough, her muscles are going to be strong enough. She's got to do this for herself. And she was not happy about it. She wanted me to help her. Right. And I think that we're like that sometimes with God, we're like, you know, why won't you solve this problem? Why won't you help me? And really God is allowing certain things in our lives to, to, you know, buffer us, to strengthen us. It makes us stronger. Uh, there's a story that um, we're we're going to be telling in the next book. And I think it's so appropriate to this though. And that's, I don't, do you remember back in the, I guess it was the nineties, they did that biodome. Well, there was the movie biodome. Oh, right. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. And, but it was, was based on yes. your fa- Yeah. It was like Polly yes. Shore and all these people. Yes. And, but in real life, they built, they had built a biodome and they, so the one thing they didn't anticipate was the trees. When they got to a certain height, they fell over in the biodome. And they, what they realized was that without wind, trees don't grow strong roots. So they yeah. need that wind to beat against them outside of a biodome experience. But because there wasn't that wind, the trees weren't strong. And so I think there's just obviously, there's so many metaphors and analogies we could use to talk about that. But God uses suffering. I mean, you look at people who have suffered and you can see such a richness in their life and a closeness with the Lord. And so that's just the point I try to make in that chapter is that really we got to reorient our brains. Like life isn't about having the great career and the big house and the, you know, whatever you want to call that. Um, But, but it's true happiness is that deep abiding joy we get from God only because only he can fill that emptiness inside of us. Yeah. I always say happiness is overrated. (laughs) Yeah. That joy, because it's happiness is based on our circumstances and our circumstances can change. And 
all the time. And but if we have that deep abiding joy that you're talking about, it's like Paul was jailed, shipwrecked, imprisoned. Uh, I already said that. Um, you know, beaten many times, but he had this joy. And it yeah. wasn't about like, oh, he had a great career and he had a great, you know, wife and kids and like a house and everything. It was like, no, all he cared about, I always say this, uh, people are tired of me saying this, but <laughs> all he cared about was running around the Mediterranean, planting churches and spreading the gospel. Like that's, that's right. all he cared about. He didn't care. Yeah. And he was so joyful about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, but you see that in the lives of people who live that way. And so yeah. that's the point I try to make in the book too. Even, uh, you know, I, I quote from Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies, where he he interviewed Christians who survived the regime, the communist regimes in the Soviet bloc. And just the depth that you find yeah. there is astounding. Like Richard Warm, and he wasn't, a, Richard Warmbrand was like, a, was that his name? Richard, Richard Warmbrand? I'm not sure. No, where, I, anyway, he was, he was in, uh, in uh prisoned in uh, romania during the communist regime there ceausescu and he was in prison for 12 years and tortured every single day i mean this guy and he was an amazing christian and he was joyful through this whole it was if you read his story it's it's so chilling and crazy it's amazing that he could have joy I mean, he it's it's just, yeah, it's a horrific yeah. story, but it's amazing. He's in he's with the Lord now. So praise God. Um, yeah. And then. And later in the book, you talk about. Uh, judging others, judging. Mm. you have a chapter called McJudgy Pants. Um, <laughs> and, and you say that every everyone's favorite Bible verses judge not lest you be judged. So talk mm-hmm. about that verse and talk about what it really means in context and why judging is actually necessary in life. Yeah. Yeah. So I called it McJudgy Pants because every time <laughs> people would say that to me all the time online, you know, you'll you'll talk about some sort of biblical point that is maybe unpopular and yeah, people like my like, story. Uh, yeah. yeah, right. Like, why are you such a McJudgy Pants, you know? And and uh so I just decided I'm going to call the chapter McJudgy Pants just because it's fun. But in the chapter, I really talk about what what biblical judging really means. So yeah, everybody, that's the atheist favorite Bible verse. It's the progressive Christian's favorite Bible verse is when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, period, end of story. And then they, you know, redact everything around it. You know, they put the black on everything, you know, nothing else exists, just that one little part. But if you look at the context of what Jesus is saying there, he's actually not saying don't judge. That would actually be illogical because you can't not judge unless you're making judgments. You know, you you make judgment. We all make judgments every day, all the time. Yeah. And so what Jesus, the point he's making is we shouldn't judge hypocritically. So he tells the story, this famous story, of course, you know, don't, don't, you, you have to look at the log that's in your own eye before you will see clearly to help your brother take the speck out of his eye. And the point of the verse is that we should help our brother take the speck out of his eye. But Jesus is basically saying, you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror first. Like, don't be that lady that's just the, you know, finger wagging sin police at church that's trying to find out what's wrong with everybody else's life, Yeah. right? But we are to confront each other in our sin. This is throughout scripture. We are, in fact, Paul even says, who am I to judge outsiders? Isn't it the people in the church that we are to judge. There's a sense in the New Testament that's very strong about protecting the church from contagion, the contagion of sin, right? Sin is contagious. And so it must be dealt with. And we see this happen in the first uh, century church. And we read about it in scripture and even have instructions on how to do it properly. So it's not that we shouldn't judge because Jesus also says, judge with right judgment. And so the way I look at it is this, you know, when it comes to judging the fate of someone's eternal soul, like I don't have the right to do that. I don't, I'm not going to declare somebody's going to hell or heaven. I mean, that's between them and their judge. But what, what we are to do is judge the fruit of each other's lives. And so if there's fruit of obedience in my life, or if there's, if there's, you know, some kind of deep abiding sin that my friends that walk with me in life, that keep me accountable are, are saying, like, we see this, like, we need to 
they need to confront me about it. And so I tell the story in the book of um, having, I I went through several years of fighting an eating disorder when I was in the Christian music industry. And one of my bandmates, like she knew something was up. She knew what was going on and she's not a confrontive person. She's a people pleaser, peacemaker always, but she loved me so much that she just couldn't let it go. And so she confronted me and it didn't go well. I did not receive it well. And I lashed out and I pushed her away. She, but then, you know, she persisted. You're like, who are you to judge me? (laughs) I did exactly that. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I mean, I, I tried to point out everything wrong I could have found in their lives when they, when, you know, when she, when she uh, eventually got my other bandmate in to support the confrontation, then I was like, what about you and you and, and you just stupid stuff, but they loved me so much. They didn't get defensive. They didn't try to defend themselves. They just continued to love me, continued to press. And honestly, it was because of that, that I eventually confessed it to my husband, got some counseling, let the Lord convict me of some things I need to repent of. And that really began, and I'm not going to say it was an overnight thing, but that really began the healing process of that in my life. And honestly, I say in the book, she judged me because she loved me and it probably saved my life. Like yeah. I was in a bad spiral and and she interrupted that spiral because she took it upon herself to judge. And so that's really what we're talking about when we talk about biblical judgment. Yeah. And, you know, some people might call it like, you know, you're it's hard. You're hating me or but it's actually no, I'm loving you. If I if I because in Hebrews, it says, um uh, exhort one another daily as long as it's called today. And um, what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, I, you know, he says, basically he's saying as as believers, as Christians, we can't go 24 hours without having, well, without needing a brother or sister in Christ saying, hey, like, I'm noticing something going on and this, you know, maybe be careful of this thing in your life and, or watch out for this. And I noticed that this, there's a pattern going on. Like, we need that. I I need that. We all need that. Yeah. Yeah, we all do. And it's, I mean, I'll tell you like that on our sanctification process, you know, there's this process of being more and more like Christ that we will be on until we are face to face with him. I mean, we need each other. Right. And that's something I think, honestly, the church could step up a little bit and do better. I think as the church has become more consumer driven and just kind of weak intellectually, we've lost some of this stuff, but we need to recapture it and be that fellowship of believers together, walking through life together as the Bible intended. And, and it's, you know, can be, it can be hard to do that in a culture yeah. that's very personality driven and, you know, all those other things, but yeah, it's, it's, there's something very valuable about that, but it's very countercultural. Yeah. And it's difficult, especially in this, as uh, you know, Carl Truman says in this expressive individualistic age where it's even as Christians we're like, well, wait a minute, like, you can't tell me that this is, you know, this is my life, you know? Right. So it's, it's difficult even in community it's difficult to even kind of hear that in community because we're so individualistic now that we're like, yeah, you can't tell me what to do, but uh, we need that. We need that um, body. We need the body of Christ to, to help us on the road to the celestial city. Now you talk about, which is in another chapter, you talk about the, the, the aphorism, God is love or not the aphorism, the truth that God is love, but how is that, distorted in our culture how is that idea that or the truth that god is love how is that distorted yeah well again we continue with the thread of postmodernism and the deconstruction of words and text but love has been redefined um if we think about love well and also we and i you know i talk about the background of growing up in the san fernando valley in the you know, the eighties and nineties and all that was kind of like the era of the the rom-coms and the Disney movies and all of the things that were just telling us that love is this, this feeling of infatuation. Uh, it's just this exciting butterfly thing. And so you got the backdrop of that, but also culturally speaking, especially now, like you mentioned with the expressive individualism, love means affirming what other people say and do and behave like, and never you know, standing in between someone and maybe their vision of who they think they are or what they should be doing or or behaving like or how they should be treating other people. It's just, you know, love according to culture just means affirming people, right? Right. But biblically, this is not the case. I mean, we have, first of all, love starts with the nature and character of God. It's one of his attributes. The Bible tells us God is love. So whatever that is, 
is really important, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Paul gives us some some a vision of that in First Corinthians thirteen, yeah. famous verse: "Love is patient, love is kind." But what a lot of people miss in there and, is that well, it, he also says, "Love does not uh, rejoice at wrongdoing," which that's is a right. huge thing. Huge, and it, but love rejoices in the truth. We often skip over those ones right there, yeah. right? Because we like the patient and kind stuff, but it's like, no, actually also, according to the Bible, I'm not loving you if I'm affirming something about you that is sinful That's going to lead to destruction. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, again, I go back to Glennon Doyle on this because um, in the book Untamed, when she talks about how, when she made the decision to leave her husband and go with Abby, she had some Christian friends from her older, you know, church experiences who were just kind of didn't know what to do with that. So she tells the story of getting a letter from a woman from her, her old church who was basically like, look, I, I know what the Bible says. I know what my religion says, but I look at you and Abby and I just see your love for each other. And I think it's so beautiful. Like, how do I, I feel like I have to choose between my religion and loving you. And Glennon writes her back and says, thank you for being intellectually honest. You do have a choice to make. And, and Glennon affirms what she's saying, like, you have to choose between your religion. And, and then she goes, Glennon goes on to list certain things. Like if you vote in a way that essentially would prevent me from being able to marry Abby, then you don't love me. If you think I'm going to hell, you don't love me. Well, that one really stood out to me because Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. And Jesus told people they were going to hell. He condemned three whole cities to hell when he performed miracles there, and they still rejected his message, right? And so according to Glennon Doyle's definition, Jesus himself is not loving. And so at that point, yeah, okay, so you do have a choice to make. Are you going to choose Jesus or Glennon Doyle? I mean, that's kind of (laughs) I'm going to go with Jesus for the record. I'm going to go with Jesus. And this is the other thing too, Beckett. And I kind of, you know, I get a little bit punchy in the book a couple of times. I acknowledge that. I I, I try not to be too sarcastic online and things, but I I take a couple shots that I think are fair in the book. But in the beginning of the book, I talk about how people are following these social media influencers, these, these people who portray themselves as life coaches, as, you know, do experts on life. And most of the time, these people are either in the middle of a massive life crisis and they're, and are rejecting Christianity, right? Or they're, you know, they're in the middle of a big divorce or in Look, I have all the compassion in the world for people who are going through difficult times, but if someone's going through something that extreme and they're rejecting the Bible and they want to tell you what's working for them, you might want to hit pause and just hit like give it a few, yeah. yeah, hit a few, let, let that thing work itself out for a few years because it might look all nice on Instagram right now, but give it a few years, right? So that's the point of the book is like, you can follow these people who have just changed their entire life and are doing something completely new that is totally untested, or you can stand on the eternal truths of God's word that have been tested over millennia. And yeah. have proven to be, to be that, like you said, that plumb line for truth and the message of salvation. I mean, it's beautiful. So yeah, it just kind of yeah. just juxtaposing these modern influencers versus the Bible. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Rachel Hollis in your book. And I remember seeing, I knew I had, I heard about her vaguely at the very beginning of all this. And I, I heard that she was a Christian and then I was at an airport and I saw her book and girl, wash your face. And I immediately, I looked at the book cover and I was like, that book is false. Whatever I, I know, whatever is inside that book is completely false. Yes. That's Just so lies, funny because I had the lies. same, I had the same reaction back and I was in Sam's club and I hadn't heard of it, but I just, I just looked at the cover and I was like, Oh, that's bad news. Whatever that is, that is bad news. And then I started hearing more about it and that's when I decided to review it. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, and, and here's the thing, like, Rachel, I've prayed for Rachel Hulse. I've prayed for Glennon Doyle. I pray for these people. This is not coming from a heart of like wanting to see them fail or fall. But the the sad thing about Rachel Hollis is her entire book is just this message of self-empowerment. It's all about you. You know, you have to put yourself first. You are the hero of your own story. You have to be the very first of all your priorities. And she's a sad test case of the what how that actually does work itself out in real life. I mean, she ended up um, I don't know where it's at today, if she's kind of built herself back up, but I mean, she all but got canceled on social media just for, for some statements yeah. and 
all of this, this message that she had been telling people about being relatable and you can do what I do. And then she says, no, I'm, I'm not relatable. I'm trying to be this high standard that nobody can reach. And then all her fans felt, I don't betrayed wash my own like, toilets. Like I don't do yeah, that. I don't want, yeah, yeah, I don't clean my own toilet. And, and it's just like, you know, all her fans feeling very betrayed, even with her divorce, because they, she and her husband had positioned themselves as these relationship experts. And then they go on social media one day, surprise, we're getting divorced, but it's all great. Big smiles. We're going to co-parent and you know, it's like everybody knows that that's there's more to that story. Right. So I think just again, like, who are we going to choose to follow? Because it's yeah. so tempting to follow the cute person on Twitter. But we have eternal tested truths in God's word. Yeah. And also, if your book is, you know, be, if your book is being sold in this current culture and if you're a Christian and you're orthodox, if your book is being sold at airports and Sam's Club, yeah, there's probably something wrong about it. Might want to check. Might want to check. If it's a bestseller, right? there's something kind of, yeah. you know, a New York Times bestseller. And yeah. I was just, I just thought it, it just a, a joke. I just was thinking she should have called the book Girl, Wash Your Face, Don't Clean Your Toilets. But anyway, we're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, lastly, well, this is maybe penultimately, um, you talk about girl power is real power question mark uh in a in a chapter called chips and you talk about how you had this chip on your shoulder and kind of how the idea of the feminist feminism kind of seeped into your consciousness and wow. talk about that a little bit and how you got out how what snapped you out of that yeah so i i talk about um it's called chips because i i slowly over time still not totally sure where it all came from because I had a, a dad who, you know, was really pro woman. I mean, my, my, my dad thought I could be president of the United States if I wanted to be, I I didn't feel like I grew up oppressed as a woman or that the men in my life were bad guys. I had great grandpa, great dad. And so, you know, I was kind of like, I don't know where it came from, but somewhere around my very early twenties, maybe super late teens, I think it was, yeah, early twenties. I realized that I was really had this chip on my shoulder about men. And so it even infected the way that I read the Bible. So I would read the story of Deborah, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm praising God for this, you know, this wonderful story of Israel being saved and having peace and prosperity. It's, no, it's all about that. It was a woman who did it. Right. And, and then, you know, of course, JL who drives the tent peg through Cicero's head. I'm like, she's like my hero. Right. I still do kind of like her. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty awesome what she did, but you you know, but but I read them with venom against men, you know, and if there was ever a man who failed, you know, Barack comes to Deborah and he says, I'll go if you go with me. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, and I, I just I was like, where is this coming from? And I remember attending a church. Um, I don't know, maybe in Santa Monica. I'm trying to remember where this church was. I probably put it in the book. But um, I, this this woman wanted to pray for me. And I just I, I or I think I asked her, I said, would you pray for me? Because I'm realizing that I have this and I'm realizing looking back on it now um, that I was repenting is what I was doing. I yeah. was basically confessing to her that I had this view of men and um, I asked her to pray for me. And I, I will, you know, it's just one of those divine things that we don't always get. And many times in my life, I prayed for things like this and I haven't gotten just an instantaneous thing. But when she prayed for me, it just broke off me back then. It was just like gone. It was gone, um, utterly gone. And the Lord just filled my heart with a love for men, a proper understanding of men. And I'm just, I'm really thankful for that. And so I have concerns about the the effects of feminism, which I think ultimately, as you mentioned, are what infected my heart was this these feminist ideas. And really what I think I had bought into was the idea that for me to be good as a woman, I had to be like a man. And that is such a big lie. I mean, talk about a cultural lie. That is a cultural lie. That's what modern feminism, it's not ultimately what a lot of the early feminists who were, you know, trying to get their equal right to vote and own property and, and uh, have an education. A lot of those were, were not egalitarian feminists, but they were the, the, they called them the maternal feminists. They were the ones who thought men and women were different, had different roles, but they were just wanting the same opportunities. 
But right. fast forward now, it's only now it's all about abortion. It's just about your right for sexual freedom. And it's infected everything. And I think it hurts men. It hurts women. And, and it, yeah, it pits men and women against each other. That's and, right. It makes women hate, resent men. I always say, if you're sending your child to college and they're a women's studies major, they're going to oh. end up hating their father for being toxic a toxic masculine person and they're going to hate their resent their mother for being a stay-at-home mom <laughs> that's right that's exactly it yeah and i so this is the point i try to make um to people is when we look at this biblically the value that god places on both men and women is equal right we know from the beginning male and female were created specifically he says male and female were created in his image and we know that women and men are equal in value and worth before the Lord, but there's very, very important reasons that we are, we look different. We're made differently. We have different uh, roles in the church. We have different roles, home. just like the Trinity. There's different That's roles in the right. Trinity. So That's it's, right. it's not like we're, you know, and we're made in the image of God. So he gives us real, different roles, just like he does, you know, in the Trinity. So That's right. Yeah. 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 So I just want, I just kind of wanted to draw attention to that lie because I think that could be one that a lot of Christians are vulnerable to who may not just like me back when I was younger, may not realize how influenced by feminism they may, they may be at this point. Yeah. And um, you, you end the book, this, the, you end the book with a chapter called death March, which I love the title of. And, uh, and you say that it's hard. It is, it's, it's, it's very difficult now to be a, to be a, a committed Orthodox Christian in this culture is is very difficult, and it could cost you your job, it could cost you your your reputation, your livelihood, everything. And uh, and you talk about resisting small the small compromises. Um, mm. And you say in the book, you say, I want to leave you with three practical tips for living the truth of the gospel in a culture at odds with Christianity. Just talk, give us one of those tips and, and how, how and why it's important to resist the small compromises. Right. Well, I think one of the, I, I'm like, oh, what were my three points? I'm looking back in my book. <laughs> well, now, I can tell you, know the real thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, here they are. Yeah. yeah. That's good. I, I, I wrote that. That's good. That's a good point there. Know the real thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the thing. Um, okay. So the, the thing about the small compromises, um, I quote Gerald Sitzer, and I think this is such a good quote. Um, I quote this at the beginning of the chapter of, of death March, because it's so apropos, it's kind of the, the book that this comes from was a bit of a history of persecution in, in, in the Christian church. And he says, most of us will not have to die for our faith, though it might come to that, even for those living in the West, but we will all face moments when we will have to choose between Christ and something else that vies for our ultimate allegiance. And I think right now, Beckett, it's pronouns, right? This is this is what my kids are facing as the biggest sort of cultural thing that you have to put your little pinch of incense in the bowl for Caesar is as long as you just capitulate on the pronouns, then you're good. And it's, it's so much the same as it was in the first century, right? Rome didn't care who you worship. You could worship as many different gods as you wanted. You could call them whatever you wanted. They didn't care as long as Caesar was Lord, right? And so the Christians would have to put their little, and, but they couldn't. They couldn't sim, you know, put that incense in, which symbolized an act of worship saying of all these other gods, Caesar is supreme. And this is why I think it's so beautiful that arguably the earliest creed in all of Christianity is Jesus is Lord, right? It's that, it's that formulation of it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And that's so profound too, because I was just talking with uh, Dr. Gary Habermas on my podcast about this. That was also a very strong claim to the deity of Jesus because it's rooted in the Old Testament word that's that's the word Yahweh, right? Jesus is Yahweh, right? Yeah. He's Lord of all. And so um, I think that the temptation you know, it's such a small little thing. Just get in line, put your little pins of incense in there. It's no big deal, but it is a big deal. And so yeah. as Christians, we can't, we have to know what the real thing is. See, first of all, if we're even going to know that it's wrong to put the pinch of incense in to Caesar, you know, symbolically for whatever that might look like in our culture, we have to know that that what the real thing is to know whether or not that's that's right or wrong to even do that in the first place. And we have to be willing to suffer in the small things. That's the point, too. Is that, yeah, and, that, um, and as you there, said, I think that that's a really good example of just the the small compromises of like, oh, you know, everyone at my 
in my office has pronouns on their social media. Like I have to do my pronouns. Like that is, that's giving, that's compromising. And that's a slippery yeah. slope because you're going to start compromising more and more and more. And people email me all the time and ask me, by the way, if you're emailing me about the, the, the pronoun question, do not use, put, put preferred pronouns on any of your social media <laughs> because it is, it's, it's putting the incense at the pinch of incense at the, the altar of, Caesar or not the altar of Caesar for Caesar though. Um, but anyway, God, I, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no. I, I just, I think that, no, that's good. It, it's yeah. It's like those little things I, I've, and, and honestly, I have so much compassion for people who are just out with regular jobs. Cause it's easy, kind of easy for me to talk into a camera and tell people, you know, or write a book and say, you know, cause I'm not in an office where they're telling me you have to put your pronouns in your LinkedIn page or you can't work here or something like that. But I, I meet people every day. Uh, well, not every day, but when I go speak at conferences, every time I meet teachers who say the pressure to put the little rainbow sticker or the, you know, the pride flag on my, on my classroom door, or even just the sticker that says this is a safe space. But again, like the creeds on the lawn, it doesn't, you know, it's actually not considered a safe space unless you're going with a certain narrative, right? right. So you can't even right. get around it that way. And so there, there are Christians are faced with unprecedented pressures, right? And, you know, I hesitate to even go use the word persecution to describe that. I certainly think that in some cases it does end up in persecution. I know people have lost their jobs for their views on marriage and things like that. Um, but I think that that's where Christians, we need to reorient our, our brains. And maybe for someone like me and someone like you, Beckett, who have online ministries and platforms, what we have to do is be willing to suffer in the small things if that means our audience gets smaller, right? It, you know, we're not going to be getting maybe, you know, God might expand that out for a while to get a message out. And then that might come real small again. And we, you know, that's how I see it is I need to be willing to sell less books. I need to be willing to have a lot of people unsubscribe because I stick with the truth on something, you know? And yeah. so I think all of us have those things that we have to face um, where we we just, if we, and if we refuse to compromise in the small things, that's going to strengthen us for if it ever comes to the bigger things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave it there. We barely scratched the surface of the book. <laughs> But guys, the book is Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. Thank you, Elisa, for being on the show. So fun. Thanks, Beckett. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful devotional and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.